And uh, how many got both those uh, questions from David, right? You won a million bucks, apparently. <laughs> Collect it from scurvy afterwards. How's that? <laughs> no, it's good. Uh, what's better? What's always better is God's grace. And that never ends. Never ends. The passage we started reading, that uh, Jennifer started reading, we're going to continue on with that story. So, but isn't it interesting uh, the, the king of Israel, who is supposed to uh, direct people towards the living God, he's not the one who knows that there's a prophet in Israel that can heal. It's a slave girl. And we're going to be looking at that amazing story of Naaman. And it's one of those stories where it's an Old Testament conversion. And sometimes we say, how are people converted in the Old Testament? And this is an amazing example of what an Old Testament conversion looks like by grace through faith. And then what happens afterwards is God prepares us for good works. So we'll look at that in just a moment. We're going to uh, go to the Lord in prayer right now. And we've already been told we need to pray for the Senior Pastor Search Committee, for the Senior Pastor Search process. Let's pray again diligently. And this is not just for today. It's every day. Let's keep praying that. We are praying every week for Ukraine. We want to pray for peace, China, Taiwan. We just want to pray for peace. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Bring any personal request before the Lord right now for yourself, your family, the world around you. Father, we have praised your name. We have sung the praises of Jesus Christ, name above all names. We acknowledge your presence with us. We know that you love the church and you love this church. And we thank you that you welcome our prayers. And so we bring our petitions, but we also bring our confessions because you welcome those as well. And we know that there is grace at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we remember those thoughts and words and deeds that dishonor you. And we confess them to you. Father, we also know that there's a living God, one who tells us to ask and seek and knock. And keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And Lord, we have been praying for who you have as the next senior pastor of this church, and we will continue to pray. And you know, and you will reveal it to us, and we pray that we would be persistent, prayerful, and patient. Father, we also want to pray for our world. Lord, we continue to pray for peace in Ukraine, and we just want to bring that, that region before you once again. And Lord, we see international tensions rise again, and we will not be anxious, but we will be prayerful. And we pray that things would resolve itself, that there would continue to be peace in the area between Taiwan and China. Give our world leaders restraint, wisdom, and I pray that for all of them that they would turn to the living God as well. Father, we pray for revival in Australia, and we pray for revival in our own lives. In Christ's name.
So I want to start by talking about the rich and famous and whoever comes to mind when you think about rich and famous, but it's not just famous, it's rich and famous. Those are the people I want to talk about. And, and they're just like you and me, you know that. They're just like us, except they're rich and famous. That's the difference. And, and so let me just tell you about one guy, so a guy who's rich and famous. So let me have this first picture of Donald Trump. This is Donald Trump. Now, I understand he, he's toasting with a Diet Coke. So just so you know, it was under Diet Coke uh, uh, logo. So he's toasting with the Diet Coke. He apparently drinks about 12 of these a day. Now, here's what you need to know about his Diet Coke and the Diet Coke you drink. It's exactly the same. There's no difference whether you drink it or Donald Trump drink, drinks it. It tastes exactly the same. There's no difference except He's rich and famous, and you're not. That's the only difference. Now, uh, let me uh, just pause on this uh, picture for just a moment, because um, when he was president of the United States, I told you, he was doing about 12 of these a day. They had to figure out a system to get those Diet Coast to him when he wanted it. So on his desk, there was a, a button, a red button. You might think, that's for international emergencies. That's for national crises. There's a red button for him to push. But no, why does he push the red button? Let's see the next picture. That's what you push to get a Diet Coke. He had it right on his desk. Now, when he gets a Diet Coke, it's different generally than when you get a Diet Coke because someone comes in with a silver platter and has a Diet Coke in an ice glass with, um, with ice in it and everything and so forth. So it's, again, it's the same Diet Coke you drink. It's just different because he's rich and famous. The circumstances are different. Now, the other thing is, he'll, he'll eat McDonald's, just like us. We, we eat it. We have to admit, we eat McDonald's. He eats McDonald's right here. So he's eating those French fries. By the way, same French fries you eat. Only he eats them on Air Force One or his own private jet, right? It's a little bit different, the circumstances. So it's the same as you, except he's rich and famous, and you're not. That's the only difference. But the, uh, the fries are the same stuff. That, that Big Mac that he's got in front of him, it's got special sauce on it. But it's the same special sauce you get, okay? So here's the deal. Rich and famous, same as us, except they are rich and famous. That's the deal. Now, how do we honor people who are great and have done great things? Well, certainly in America, there's this thing they do in New York called a ticker tape parade. And there's this, uh, to, between a line of, of buildings, they would just shower down ticker tape or shredded paper these days, and they call it the Canyon of Heroes. And so that's how they would honor someone who's done something great. And so if you're the, the first person on the moon, you get a ticker tape parade, and so that type of stuff. That's kind of the, the way it happens. Or if you may be a, a great sports hero and broken a long-lasting record, you might get a ticker tape parade. But very few people get those, but it's the canyon of heroes. Now, I want you to think about Elisha's day now. In Elisha's day, there was a, a great man who was rich and famous named Naaman. And if he were alive in New York City, he would have gone through the Canyon of Heroes because he was a very valiant man, won battles, won wars. How is he going to be treated? Well, same as you and me, except he's rich and famous. 
Now, let's think about how he's treated, though, in the kingdom of God, in God's society. Does greatness matter to God? Sometimes we might think, if someone is great in this world, God hates them. He doesn't want anything to do with them. But we're going to see something interesting here. God is going to welcome Naaman to exercise faith, trust, hope. The thing is, his greatness doesn't matter when it comes to grace. And that's what we need to recognize, that the rules do change. That, in fact, the same rules for you and me are the same rules for the, those who are rich and famous. How does someone receive grace? Grace is given to the humble, not the rich and famous, the humble. That, that grace is given, and it lifts us up. So what we have is the story of Naaman. Now, why is this relating to you and me? How does this relate to you and me? The point I want to make is this. First, this guy's a Gentile. This guy is not part of the nation of Israel. He's not part of God's chosen people. And for most of us here, we would recognize we're not Jewish. We've got to enter the kingdom of God, not by birthright, but by grace. And what he receives is this amazing grace, and he doesn't get it by being great or rich or powerful, but he has to come in the same way you and I come into the kingdom of God. Turns me to 2 Kings, again, chapter 5. We're going to continue the story. So we've seen the first part, and now we're going to continue the story is Elisha's going to take over, and he's going to direct Naaman as to what to do. We'll see Naaman's response, which looks very real, very much how you might expect Naaman to respond, and then someone's going to speak some wisdom into Naaman's life. So I'm going to ask you to stand as I read from 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and thought and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off, notice, in a rage. Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, 
your servant be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimnah to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimnah, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. This is God's word. You may be Three ideas that we want to bring out. First, God is not a respecter of greatness. We have this description of Naaman early on in the chapter that he is the commander of the king's army. He's a great man in the sight of his master. He is highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Arab. And so you've got these statements about him. And then we have this other thing. Not only was he able to do great things and he was given victory, he himself was a valiant man. So if you think about it, he's going to be admired by a lot of people. Even the king of his own nation admires him. He would be one of those guys who would get those canyon of heroes welcomes when he comes home. The guy has everything going for him. He's powerful, successful, popular, brave, everything you wanted in a commander, but he has what? Leprosy, a skin disease. This white skin that would deaden the nerves, and that's what he's got. It's a bad deal. It's a scary thing. Here's the first sign of humbling. He gets advice from a slave girl, a young woman, slave, who serves Naaman's wife. He is not getting wisdom, advice from the powerful, from the educated. He's getting wisdom, he's getting advice from a slave girl. And she tells him that there is a living God, that there is a prophet that represents that living God in Samaria. And then we see the prestige. The king hears about it, and the king gives a letter, the king of uh, Aram. So we have the attention of the king of Israel. So see, it just doesn't sound good. Okay, we'll keep working on it. So we, we have the attention of the king of Israel because there's a letter from the king of Aram. What the king of Israel sees when he sees this letter, now we're getting better. Okay, when the king of Israel sees this letter, he thinks, we're about ready to start an international incident here. Because the king of Aram basically is going to pick a fight with me. He sends his commander, who he loves, and if the king of Israel says, we can't help you, and he sends him back and says, we're not going to help you, or even sends him back sicker than when he came, what's going to happen there? The king of Israel thinks, now we've got a real problem. Now, we've seen even this week, it doesn't take much to cause an international incident, right? We just have Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan, and we've got an international incident. So here's what we're afraid of here. Same thing happening. But he's got this prestige, the letter from the king. He has money. He brings 10 talents of silver that, to many of us, that doesn't mean that much, but it's 340 kilograms of silver, 
6,000 shekels of gold, that's 69 kilograms of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. And we may think, well, what's so big about deal? Well, that's a big deal. It's not off the rack. These would obviously be handmade, beautifully sewn, finest material worn by kings and by great people. And so that's what he brings. Here's the point I want to make. We honor greatness, but what do we learn about God here? God will not reject him because he's rich and powerful. Now, sometimes we think God's going to snub these people, but he doesn't. Naaman will have to come to God in the same way everyone else comes, but he can come to God. We don't have to give up praying for the rich and powerful as if they are too far away from the grace of God or the grace of God can't reach them. God is not a respecter of human greatness, but he allows everyone. The invitation of the gospel is whosoever, everyone's allowed to come. Now, here's the second point. Grace, God's riches in Christ, are given to the humble. Grace is given to the humble. The problem for Naaman is this. He's a great man. He knows how to do a lot of things, achieve things. But then Elisha comes out. And he doesn't personally greet Naaman. In fact, he sends a servant. Now, why is he doing that? Why doesn't Elisha just even show up and, and just, he comes to the house. Why didn't he come show up? Perhaps he's reacting to Naaman's expectations, what he wanted. And what I would take it that one of the things he wants is what I'm going to call vending machine uh, grace. <clears throat> Typical vending machine, you put your money in. You get the product out, right? That's how it works. You always you put your money in, pick what you want, and you get it. And so it has to do with you making sure you put enough money in that vending machine, and then you get your product. Now, I've got a couple of pictures of some vending machines. They don't always work, as you know. So this machine is not dispensing food, but is accepting don cash donations. So that occasionally happens. And then a second one, uh, do not use... Uh, unless you like surprises. So vending machines are made to be a particular weight, but they have an order. And the idea is, if I put the right amount of money in and make the correct selection, I should get what I want. So here is Naaman coming in with this vending machine type faith. Is I'm going to come, here's what I want, here's what I need, I'll give you the money, I've got the stuff, I've got the goods with me, I just need you to dispense this freedom from leprosy. Verse 11, he says, I thought he would just come out, call on God, wave his hands, and then there'd be this cure. But what we see is the display of God's grace. It's going to extend to Gentiles, even to Israel's enemies. And what's fascinating is this. Jesus is going to make reference of this in his hometown of Nazareth. So look over with me at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 24. Jesus, speaking to the people of Nazareth, says this. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. So that's where we are right now. 
the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now here's the response Jesus gets when he says that. Because here's what he's saying is, there was a widow that Elijah cared for. There was a great man, Naaman, that Elisha heals. Verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Why are they so angry? Because God is not a respecter of persons. Basically, if you want to say, well, I've got the right genes, I've got the right DNA, I've got the right ethnicity, and Jesus says, by the way, even though you live in Nazareth, even though you live in my hometown, you know our God, he cares for this widow in Zarephath, and he cares for Naaman. And they're furious when they hear that. They don't want to hear those stories from the Old Testament. But that's what Jesus points out to them. And what's he saying? That grace, grace even extends to the Gentiles. Sometimes, even when the people in Israel, because there were plenty of widows in Israel in Elijah's day, there were plenty of lepers in Israel in Elisha's day. But grace was given, notice, to the widow in Zarephath and to Naaman. Elisha's direction. This is what he says to Naaman. I want you to go down to the Jordan, dip through seven times in the Jordan. Naaman hears this, and this is preposterous. This is absolutely ridiculous. I've never heard of something so foolish and stupid in my life. Actually, I could have gone to Damascus, got a lot better water there than having to go to the Jordan. Here's again a humbling. His servant is going to speak to him, and he's going to say this. He's going to address the real issue of pride, and this is the issue often with the rich and the famous, the very highly successful. Pride. They want to do great things. They want to pay their own way. They want to earn their own way. So he said, if he had asked you to do something great, would you have not done it? If he asked you to conquer some great test of strength, climb a mountain, kill a bear, whatever it is, when you've done that, when you've sought to do that, here he's just asking you to go and dip in the Jordan seven times. It's humbling, it's humiliating, but that's all he's asking to do. So what happens is this servant talks sense into Naaman. What's interesting is this. Grace, if you think about grace and its nature, it always strikes at our pride. It always strikes at our pride because it's unmerited. It's unearned. People who genuinely know that they have received grace recognize, I did nothing to earn this or deserve it. I'm not better than anybody else in the world. It's just God's grace given to me. Pride is a tough thing for people who have great accomplishments. Uh, one of the great guys that um, he was very boisterous in his day, he was called himself no less than the greatest, you know who I'm talking about, Muhammad Ali. Okay, so this is a quick story I like about Muhammad Ali. I don't know if it's a true story, but it kind of fits him at, at any rate. But the story is he's um, on an aircraft, you know, commercial airliner, 
And the stewardess comes by and she says, I need you to, uh, to uh, fasten your seatbelt. Ali looks at her, and everybody knows who he is. Ali looks at her, and he says, Superman don't need no, no uh, seatbelt. She doesn't miss any uh, beat with this. She comes back, and she says, Superman don't need no plane either. You need to buckle your seatbelt. Now, the point is, sometimes we're so full of ourselves, sometimes we think, I don't need anything, I certainly don't need God, and I don't need his grace, and I don't need to humble myself before the living God. Those are the people that don't receive grace. But those that come to God in humility, in humility, and recognize, what's he asking you to do? Dip in the Jordan seven times. Nothing great, nothing heroic, Nothing you're going to write home and, and brag about, but it's just simple obedience. Now, let's see the rest of the story, beginning in verse 15 again. Because he re- comes out of the water, and his flesh has become like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing, even though Naaman urged him and he refused. And this is what I want to point out, and we'll look at this in our next point. He says, If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. Why does he want dirt? But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing, when my master enters the the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm. So this is the king leaning on his arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, May the Lord forgive your servant for this. And here's what Elisha says, go in peace. So here's the the final point. The proper response to God's grace is sincere and uncompromising worship. The proper response to God's grace is sincere and heartfelt worship. God's grace is not going to be bought. We've got to be clear about that. God doesn't need the money, right? And and Elisha is representing God on the planet. And Elisha's not going to take any money. He doesn't want any money. Now, he comes loaded with money. A ton of silver, a whole lot of gold, ten beautiful garments. But Elisha doesn't want any of that because grace cannot be purchased, and it's it's not vending machine grace. God just gives it out. He just gives it out freely. Naaman's only desire is in verse 15. His only request is, let me have some dirt. Now, what's that about? Well, it's a physical reminder of the land of Israel, of course. Why is that? Because the gods, the foreign gods that he used to worship are not true gods. There's only one true God it's the God of Israel. So he asked to take the dirt as a reminder 
kind of like we might have if we want to remember to pray or remember to read our Bible. We put it out in front of our, our, on our nightstand or put it out in front of us and make sure it's reminding me to seek after God, to be in his word. And this is all he's saying. I just want that dirt. There's nothing magical about it. I just want to remember the land of Israel because that's the true God, the God I will worship. And he says that very clearly. There is no other God but the Lord, the God of Israel. He has his fear of offending God then. If he knows there's no other God but Israel, the God of Israel, he has his fear of offending God because he knows he's also going to be asked at time to be with the king, and the king is going to have his arm, and the king is going to kneel in front of a false god. And it's interesting, he's already thinking ahead because he's basically saying, I can't do that. I'm only going to worship the one true and living God. I can't put, bow my knee before a false God. So what he asks for is forgiveness in advance. When I do this, it is not an act of worship. You need to know that is not me bowing a knee before a false God because there's only one true and living God. It's me just basically being there with my master, but I'm not doing it as an act of worship. And so Elisha simply says, fine, go in peace. You can go. It's okay. Worship God alone. One of the things that, I, that surprises me as you look at this is here's a, a pagan, a, a Gentile, and he gets it. He gets it. He understands that when you receive grace, the, re, the recipient of grace has this thing called good works, good deeds, and a major part of that is worship. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and being. To worship him. To worship him. I've got a quote from uh, William Temple, who in the early part of the 20th century was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And, and he gets it as well, because he's the Archbishop, but, but he's not, a, you know, he's not a, a pagan, he's an Archbishop, but he understands worship, and I love what he says. He says, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. Now, why does he have this, these high phrases and uh, in, interesting, even poetic way of trying to say, worship does all this? Because he recognizes when you are genuinely worshiping and recognizing upon the sovereign God and the living God, that it changes everything. And so what it changes is our conscience, our mind, our imagination, our heart, and even our will. So let me ask you right now, have you worshiped God today? Not just sung the songs, have you worshiped God? Have you allowed God to change your heart, your thought, your purpose, who you are? Do you recognize there's something new going on here? And these are called good works. And worship is a big part of that. Let's look at Subi, um, Scripture, Subi again. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And what we see is in Naaman, that Old Testament example, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Naaman, you have anything to boast about? 
nothing. He has nothing to boast about, not before the living God. But he saved by grace. It's a gift. And then the passage says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And here's what Naaman knows. Part of my good works is to worship the one true living God. That's who I will worship in spirit and in truth. And if there's any time that even looks like I may be bound to a false god, I'm not, because there's only one true and living God. Here's the question for us that we all need to think about. Have you received grace, the forgiveness of God, life everlasting, that hope that comes by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And then second, what has God called you to do? He has called you to be a person of worship. Naaman understood that. We need to understand that. And when we worship, it changes how we think and it changes how we live. It's worship. And it's a good work before the living God. And he is worthy. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that grace is offered in the gospel and it's offered even to people like us. We praise you that we do not have to be rich and famous, that we do not have to have a ton of accomplishments. In fact, we bring nothing to the cross of Jesus Christ except our sins. And there we receive forgiveness and life. Lord, I pray right now for any who have not received your grace, that they would be like Naaman, simply humble themselves. It will not be an achievement, and it cannot be purchased. It's a gift. Lord, we confess, we who are in Christ Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, Son of God, crucified for sinners, buried with the third day, raised from the dead. And he is the giver of life and hope. And Lord Jesus, we want to worship you right now. In Christ's name. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper. And I want you to think about it. This is an act of worship. It's an act of recognizing God's grace that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. It is a confession through a visible action. We take the bread and we take the cup. And we take it to be part of ourselves because Jesus Christ is now part of us. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, having put your faith and trust and hope in him, the Lord's Supper is for you. It's intended for those who have faith. If you've never put your trust in Christ Jesus again, it's a free gift. It's offered to you right now. But until you believe and put your faith in him, we'd ask that you not take of the bread or the cup. Just take a moment and we'll prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. God so loved the world that he 
gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We celebrate forgiveness. We celebrate your love. And we celebrate the resurrected Christ. And we remember his sacrifice for us right now. May we worship you in Christ's name. As we've done in these COVID days, we'll, feed, we'll serve from the front, so those to the side, if you'll go over to the side, and those to the center, come on to the center. And I'm going to ask the first five, ten rows to go ahead and stand and come on up. Again, going to ask you to meditate upon this, this great thought about worship. Worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. When we do, we see a holy God and we see our need for forgiveness. It's to feed the mind with the truth of God, that God so loved us. It's to purge the imagination by the beauty of God that we see his glory. It's to open the heart to the love of God that we receive it. It is to devote the will to the purpose of God. We commit ourselves to him. Jesus meets with his followers and he gives them the bread and he says, this is my body for you. Let's take and remember. And then he gives them the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's for you. Take and remember. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we praise you that we have just one more opportunity to sing your praises and worship you. And I pray that you would meet with us right now. In Christ's name.